morning. Good morning, church family. Good to see you guys. Good to see you. If you guys appreciate being on the worship God together this morning, let's give God a hand this morning if you're thankful. You guys thankful for our worship team? Amen. All right, as Jared mentioned, we're wrapping up the series, We Who Are. We've been looking at this verse out of Romans 12, 5. It says, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So the first week when we opened this series, we talked about what we believe are core principles that help the body of Christ, every church, be strong and effective and efficient towards accomplishing everything that God has for them. And then last week we talked about how important it is that we are connected in community. We talked about covenant community, the need that we have for relationships. I want to thank every person that, that answered that. A lot of people signed up for serve groups and life groups, and we appreciate that. Even this last week, I got to see a couple of posts of people that are living life in community and around life groups, just talking about how God has used it in significant ways to help them grow, to help them be healed and to accomplish the things that God has for them. And this week, I want to answer this question. Are you a slave, orphan, or heir? And we're going to look at this passage of Scripture in Romans 8, starting in verse 14. It says this, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought you about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. You know, this last week, you know, watch VBS a couple of the nights, hanging out a little bit, and then, and then for a while, the last time, man, it was so cool. And I, I, Pastor Bernie, our children's pastor, is going to tell you a little bit more about that later on in the service, so I don't want to steal his thunder. But, man, it was, it was awesome. And, our, and we have four kids, and they were all in VBS, and it was so encouraging um, having them come home and say, man, this was the, the best VBS ever. Um, and just the experience that they had. And what I loved about it is we were able to, to create these different tracks where there were different focuses, where there was a sports track, or we had sewing and baking and uh, computer programming that my son Corbin was in, and just all these different things, and, a, and getting to see a glimpse of God's purpose and God's gifting and God's calling on these little kids as they were using the different passions and desires that they had inside of them, and as they worshiped God together, it was just amazing. And so one of the things as, as a pastor, but more importantly as a dad, and as someone who's trying to be the man of God that he's called me to be, I ask myself the question, what kind of church, what kind of body of Christ do I want my kids to grow up in. What is that going to look like? There are six generations currently alive on the earth. There's the GI generation, the silent generation. Don't hear much about them. Uh, sorry, that's a bad joke. But 
the baby boomer generation, uh, Gen X, millennials, and then the boomlets. That's my kids. Yes, they are. In 2006 and after that are the boomlets. And this, this out, these births, they outnumber the baby boom. It's a lot of kids. So I'm a Gen X, my parents are boomers, and my kids are boomlets. Out of all those generations, I love the World War II generation. The greatest generation. That's what they're called, and I completely agree with it. It is amazing what these men, what these women, what they did. We actually just had the 74th anniversary of D-Day, and just thinking about, man, that day, the the bravery of, of the men in the Pacific, the men that went into the European theater, uh, just incredible. Back a few years ago, I, I got to meet a World War II vet. I was actually outside of the Home Depot, and I was walking in, and I noticed this, this older man, and he had uh, a World War II veteran's cap on, and you just don't see that very often anymore. And so uh, he was actually, he had a couple pieces of plywood, and he had his truck, and he was trying to load these pieces of plywood in his truck, and he was just set on this. So he grabbed a piece of plywood, and he picked it up, and then some wind came <laughs> and grabbed it. And so he's kind of stumbling across the parking lot. So I went over and, and, and grabbed it, and I said, sir, can I help you out? And he's like, please do. <laughs> I don't want to die. And, uh, and so I helped him, and, and then I just took that oppor- opportunity. I said, sir, if you're not in a hurry, do you mind me asking? You, you, you get to watch a lot of different generations around you. You're getting to, to watch this generation. What, what do you believe is the biggest difference between your generation and the generation that you see now? And I could tell that he was trying to formulate and be really careful about how he was going to say this. But he's a World War II vet, so he just came straight out and said it. He said, you know what? There just aren't winners anymore. Back in my day, there were winners and there were losers. Everybody's too afraid of offending everybody else these days, so there aren't winners and there aren't losers. I said, when we understood what we had to do, what we had to do when we went to fight that war, we understood that there was going to be a winner and there was going to be a loser. And the fact is, we lost some. And it was how we responded to the losses that defined us. But we had to lose to be defined. I was like, wow, this is getting really good. (laughs) And he said, but you know what else? There was a sense of loyalty and honor. When, When what happened at Pearl Harbor happened, he said, little communities, every able bodied man went to enlist. And he told me that, that at one point when he was there, he went to enlist. He said that there were 40 and 50 and 60 year old men standing in line, trying to sign up, trying to enlist to be a part of this. He said, he remembered this 60 year old man sitting on the curb bawling because they wouldn't let him join. <laughs> I think we live in a little bit of a different time now. 
And I'm not saying there's not a sense of patriotism. I'm not saying there's not a sense of belonging. But, but I do feel like we live in a time when it's more difficult for people to be completely committed with one focus and one goal towards winning something. There's nothing more important than winning for the kingdom of God, than winning for his name. And so in the body of Christ, I feel like we have a lot of different generations represented here. And every generation has a different mindset. Within the church, you can see generations where it was all truth and no grace. And those generations, unfortunately, they, they had a tendency to run a lot of people out of church. Because they were, they were, they were true in presenting the gospel and presenting the word. But there was no grace around it. And so it burned people and hurt people. But then there's also generations where there's a lot of grace and almost no truth. And it's really easy for people to be a part of that, but it's not the whole truth. And so it can be very misleading. I talked to a good friend of mine this last week, and and early on in, in his ministry, man, he was very, very strong in everything that he would communicate. He said, James, one of the things I learned, I, I used to, one of my favorite phrases, one of the favorite phrases and this is, this is a man I respect. He's a godly man. So I was listening. I'm like, man, what is this phrase? He says, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. I'm like, well, really? You're quoting Mary Poppins? <laughs> like, that's your favorite phrase? Like, I kind of expected more. But he said, what I learned was, sugarcoating something doesn't change what it coated. It just makes it a little easier for someone to take. And I said, well, that is very true. He said, just because you put some grace around truth doesn't change the truth. It just makes the truth easier to hear, easier to swallow. So you have generations that think different ways. The truth is this. We can destroy the potential in people, and we can destroy the potential in a generation just because they don't think like us, because we disagree with them but we can also destroy generations by instilling the wrong mentalities and the wrong thinking. And so how we set up the next generation of believers to be a strong body of Christ is so important. You know, in a relay race, anybody run relay races and track growing up, anything like that? Well, here's the deal. The whole race can be won and lost in the transition, in the handoff. It doesn't matter how fast you are. We've seen this. Anybody that's been following the Olympics, how many incredible American running teams have we had that botch the handoff and lose the whole race? Favorites to win it all. Favorites to set records, but they botched the handoff and lost it all. And so the handoff to the next generation is so incredibly important. But what it means is this. It means that the older generation has to slow down the younger generation has to start to pick it up so that there can be a smooth transition. But the question is this, what is the mindset that we're handing off? Who are we as a body of believers here, but also the body of Christ nationally? 
globally, what are the mentalities that we're handing to the next generation? If you're wondering if you're older, the answer is yes. You're always older than someone. You're always older than someone. And because you're always older than someone, someone is always watching you. Someone is always paying attention to the things you say, the things you do. I promise you, your kids are watching you and how you interact and how you talk about the body of Christ. How you treat the body of Christ. How you function within the body of Christ. I promise you, your kids are watching you. They're watching you. They may not be saying anything, but they are learning all the time. I see this with my kids. How many times have there been things that have happened where I realized, man, I didn't necessarily want them to learn that example. Like driving down the highway and someone cuts you off. There's nothing like hearing your four-year-old from the very back, idiot! We don't talk like that. You do. (laughs) Do as I say, not as I do. Oh, shoot, I did say it. Okay. Once a while back, I've shared this before, a while back, we we tuck the kids in at night and pray for them. And and, uh, we're tucking Corbin in. And Corbin's like, Mom, come here. I want want to give you a kiss. She's like, oh, that's sweet, buddy. So she goes lean in. And he takes out his hands and puts it on the side of her face. And then starts to like draw her in and goes like this. (laughs) So Cody was like, Corbin, what are you doing? (laughs) He's like, I just want to kiss you like daddy kisses you. I'm like, wow. (laughs) There's a time and a place, son. And (laughs) they watch everything they do. And they want to be like us. They want to be like us. A little while back, Grayson came and asked if, if she could help put makeup on London, our oldest daughter. And this is how it turned out. <laughs> but here's the thing. She was so sincere. Like, she wasn't trying to make her look like a mime. <laughs> Ironically enough, London's kind of wearing a mime shirt, but... Like she really felt like with all of her heart that she was doing a really good job putting makeup on her big sister. Her perspective was, man, I'm I'm, I'm gonna be just like mom. We're setting an example. The question is, what are the example we're setting? The example or the pace that we set is determined by our mentality and our mentality is determined by how we see ourselves in relationship with God. How we see ourselves in relationship with God will determine our mentality. And this may be too much of a summarization, but I I really feel like within churches, within the body of Christ, there are really three primary different mindsets. It's a slave, an orphan, or an heir. And some people, they have a slave mentality. Some have a slave mentality. Back to our text for today, Romans 8, verse 14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. In September 1862, President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Now, they're in the middle of the Civil War. So even though he 
declared that slavery would end. It didn't end because they were in the middle of the war. And then he also, when the war ended, said it again. Still, slaves remained in slavery. In 1865, slaves were free, but many stayed in bondage. In 1865, the 13th Amendment to the Constitution was written, making slavery illegal. And still, people remained in slavery. A friend of mine, Marcus Brown, had a conversation a little while back with an African-American lady who said that her family were living on the cotton fields of Arkansas until 1957. 1957. In other words, 90 years after the amendment was written and slavery was illegal, they were still living in the same conditions that they had been living in slavery. And he asked her, why do you think that that is? And there were two primary things that she communicated. One was that they didn't really believe that they were free. And the other was they didn't know any other way to live. And so they just kept living the way that they knew to live. But I find that that same mentality exists within the body of Christ. That same mentality exists within Christians. That we can be free men and women still living in bondage that the chains can be removed from our lives, but not removed from our hearts. And so we don't move forward. We don't change the way we're living. How you serve God, God's house, his kingdom is based on how you see yourself. The Bible says without Jesus, look, we are all enslaved to sin. And we try to free ourselves to make ourselves right enough, pure enough, good enough, but our efforts are in vain. It's only through Jesus. It's only through Jesus. But the problem is, Jesus can come and set you free, but you can decide to hold on to a mindset that keep you in bondage. And you can live around the things of God, around church, around his body, and still be a slave. People who struggle with the religious spirit often struggle with this, I find. Because the religious spirit is still working to try to save. Still, it's effort. It's their ability to, to be right, to be pure. And in that, I think you stay in a slave mentality. Slave mentality keeps you under the law. It's legalistic. It also makes you a victim. It keeps you in a victim mindset. And you can see the slave mentality play out in a lot of aspects in life. But you can also see how it affects how you interact within your role within the body of Christ. So what are some indicators? And I want to compare and contrast between heirs and slaves, the different ways that heirs think versus how slaves may think. Some indicators, heirs build the house, slaves use the house. 
Another way to say this is, it's kind of the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat. I think that a lot of people, they're either a thermometer or they're a thermostat. What do I mean by that? Well, what does a thermometer do? All a thermometer does is read temperatures. It's hot. It's cold. It's hot. It's cold. I don't like that it's hot. I don't like that it's cold. What does a thermostat do? A thermostat sets the temperature. If there's something that's in a room, an environment that is off, that doesn't feel right, a thermostat says, what can I do to make this environment feel right? What can I change? What do I need to change so that the atmosphere, so that the environment, so that the house can be whole, so that it's strong? We've talked about this a little bit before, but it's also just the difference between contributors and consumers. Because contributors are trying to find ways that they can help make things better. And consumers just come in and say, well, you're supposed to give me what I need. Come on, give me what I need. Serve me. Anybody ever seen the difference between a rental house and a house that somebody has owned? You go into neighborhoods where there's a lot of rental houses. The real estate market's not as strong in those places. Why? Because the people that are staying in those homes don't have anything invested in those homes. They just rent them. So you, typically the yards are not taken care of. You know, they don't look as nice because they don't own them. They're just, they're just there. But if you are in a neighborhood where people own their homes, typically the value of those homes is stronger because the yards are taken care of. The houses themselves are taken care of. Why? Because there is investment. Anybody ever rented a car before? Let me ask you this. Do you take as good a care of that car as you take of your own car? I'll be honest. I don't. Like when I, when I get a rental car, I don't care what happens to that thing. Like I drive it like I stole it everywhere. Like every time I take off from a stoplight, I'm just going to see, I'm going to how much juice this thing's got. Come on, let's see. I ride those brakes hard. I don't care. I'm eating in there, dropping fries all over the place. I'm like, well, leave those for later. I don't care because I don't own it. My car? Now, some of y'all can't relate to this because some of y'all treat your car like a rental car. (laughs) But in my house, look, like cars are big investments for us. So I baby that thing. Like it's an automatic, but I still shift to save brakes. Heirs build the house, slaves use it. Heirs are family-oriented, slaves are issue-oriented. Another way to say this is slaves see problem people, so-and-so and so-and-so. Heirs see the value in people and can separate them from their problems. They just see them differently. Slaves, man, they're just like, I can't believe so-and-so, this and that, oh my goodness, driving me crazy. I don't, I don't even know how, why do they even let people like that in the church? That is a slave mentality. Slaves expose weaknesses. Heirs cover each other's weaknesses. They cover, they try to protect. 
It's kind of like Noah's kids right after the flood. Noah made a bad decision. He got drunk, bad drunk, naked drunk. And so he's laying in his tent in all his glory. And one of his kids come in and sees him like that, runs out to the other sons and says, God, dad is buck naked in the tent. Yeah, way too much to drink. But those two other sons, they had a different response. And they took a blanket. They walked backwards into the tent so that they didn't see their dad and his shame and they covered him. Which kid are you? Are you really anxious to run off and talk about people's weaknesses and the things that they've done, the mistakes that they've made and talk about those things? Or are you quick to say, hey, let's try to cover them. Let's try to cover their shame. Let's not try to expose them. Slaves are issue oriented. Heirs use the language of the family. Slaves use the language of themselves. Another way to say this, heirs say things like we, our, us. Slaves say things like me, mine, or they. Why don't they? They need to. But that is not a son. And that is not a daughter. When you're a son or a daughter, you're an heir and you say, this is us. This is us. The body of Christ is us. So whether you talk about this church or another church, when you start saying they, you're missing it. And it could be an indicator of a little bit of a slave mentality that could be creeping into your life. Heirs look to bond new people to the family and to the kingdom. Slaves think the kingdom is just for them. In other words, when you're an heir to the kingdom of God, you're constantly looking around, trying to figure out who else you can bring into the family. Who else can you invite to be a part of the kingdom of God? Who else can you bring in? Who else can you draw in? Who else can you invite? Who else? Who else? But when you have a slave mentality, you just kind of settle in. And you're just satisfied with saying, oh man, I'm glad the AC is on today. I'm glad somebody's not sitting in my normal chair. Come on now, I know you all have your normal chair. Heirs are always thinking about who else needs to sit in this chair? Who else needs to be here? Heirs are secure and can handle correction, discipline, and change. Heirs are transparent and authentic. Slaves put on masks. In other words, slaves only kind of tell you what they think you want them, you, they want you to hear. They're not always transparent. We talked a lot about that a couple weeks ago. But heirs are secure. Slaves are insecure, so they really can't learn anymore. They're done learning. They already know everything. They can't move beyond that place. Heirs are teachable. So are you thinking like an heir or are you thinking like a slave? These are some indicators. Number two, some have an orphan mentality. Now, a common assumption is an orphan is a child with deceased parents. But a more inclusive definition that a lot of adoption agencies and relief agencies use is a child who is deprived of parental care, whatever that looks like. 
Dictionary.com says, a person or thing that is without protective affiliation, not authorized, supported, or funded, isolated, abandoned. Not long ago, we got to witness this historical event, the royal wedding. That's where Prince Henry married this girl. What was her name? Prince Harry? Whatever, I didn't watch it. (laughs) Clearly. What was her name? Okay, I knew you knew it. I I didn't know as many men would know it. Uh, (laughs) That was really quick, but we'll move on. In a moment, this girl, Meghan Markle, a mixed-race, small-role actress, a divorcee from a broken home, became heir to the throne of England. Adopted in is this royal princess, Her Royal Highness, the inaugural Duchess of Sussex. What an amazing, perfect picture of what the Father heart of God is for the people that he adopts into royalty. He exchanges our broken story for an amazing opportunity. The problem is, even when people respond to the call, they can still operate like orphans. They can still feel this way. Ephesians 1, verse 4 says this, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. As we go on in Romans 8, it says, But you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons by whom we cry, Abba. Everybody say, Abba. Abba, Father, which means quite literally, Daddy. Daddy. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So we're given a spirit of sonship by which we cry, Abba, Father. To see God as daddy changes everything. But here's the deal. He isn't just Abba. He is also judge. He is. He is a king. (laughs) It is a monarchy. I find that a lot of reasons why we have a difficult time with kingdom principles in the West is because we think that the kingdom of God is a democracy. (laughs) It is not. It is a monarchy. God is king. He is judge. And I am so thankful that God put the gavel down on my sin and said, you are not guilty because of my son, Jesus. But the thing is, I just don't want to hang out with the judge. Like, I don't know a lot of people that would want to. Like, kids are not like, I want to have a Nerf war with judge. I want to play hide and seek with the judge. I want to go watch an action flick with the judge. Like, I don't necessarily want to do that. I don't want to go watch the new Avengers movie with the judge. I'm just afraid the whole time he'd be like, oh, that's illegal. They can't do that. Somebody's going to have to pay for that. Somebody's going to have to clean that mess up. This isn't even realistic, is it? 
But I find that so many people just see God that way. But they don't understand that he's more than just the right and just judge. He is an Abba. He is a daddy. And he adopts us. He makes us his own. If you don't see that, you're going to live like an orphan, even around the body of Christ, even while worshiping, even while doing church things, you can still be living like an orphan unless you know that you've been adopted. When I was growing up, I moved around a lot. I've shared a little bit of that. My, my freshman or sorry, sophomore year in high school, I was in a new town, new school. And my dad felt like I needed a friend. Like, I was lonely. I was like, Dad, I'm, I'm fine. Like, I'm cool. I'm, I'm okay. He's like, no, I feel like you, you, need a, you need a buddy. And so this is one of the most vulnerable confessions that I've ever made in this church. And I prayed about this. I wasn't even sure that I was going to share it. But here it is. My dad went to the animal shelter. Help me, God. (laughs) And got me a kitten. No, 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 no. No clapping. He got me a kitten. A kitten. I'm like, Dad, really? Like, I thought we hated cats. You got me a kitten. So I had this kitten. I named him Oliver because that was the only cat name that I knew from the movie. And so I named him Oliver, um, but I've got to shorten up this story. Oliver didn't last long. Uh, one day, it snowed about two feet. I was living in Wyoming, and uh, I let him outside to play in the snow. He'd never been in the snow, so he's prancing off through the snow. And I was just standing there, uh, uh, didn't have any shoes on or anything out, and he just kind of kept playing. And He ran out onto the road, and a snow plow with a big snowblower on the front of it came around the corner and, and snowblowed Ollie. And so, uh, so he was out in the field beside himself, and... Uh, So my dad came home. <laughs> James, where's the kitten? I was like, oh, uh, he got snow blowed. <laughs> he what? <laughs> he got too far away from the house. The snow was deep. I didn't have any shoes on. They didn't see him. He's out there in the field. He's not doing good. And he's like, James, I'm so sorry. I'm like, oh, I'll make it. The very next day, he goes and gets me another cat. (laughs) And some of y'all are thinking right now, some of y'all twisted brains, cat people, and you're like, see, it's always been God's will. (laughs) It's just meant to be. But he didn't just get me a cat. He got me a red tip Siamese that was about 26 pounds. Stood about that high off the ground. I'm not joking. And I named him Harley because when he slept, he sounded like a motorcycle. (laughs) Like you literally couldn't sleep with him. He would keep you up. (laughs) Just bad. But Harley came with some habits. Because, you know, when you adopt an animal, sometimes they come with some habits. They've developed some habits. 
And Harley was a little aggressive. He was a little aggressive. And the other thing that Harley liked to do was bring dead animals home to me. So it was not uncommon for me to let him out and he would come back to the house and I would hear him scratching on the door and open the door and he would be presenting a squirrel to me. You're welcome. Harley was clearly more dog than he was cat. At one point, the neighbor was walking his two full-grown black labs down the street. I opened the door to say hello to him. Harley jetted between my legs, ran straight at these two black labs. They started going nuts. Harley didn't slow down. He just came in swiping at him like crazy. He chased these two black labs down the road 100 yards to their house, through the dog door, into their house. I had to go into this man's house and pull my cat <laughs> off of his two black labs. We moved again. I had to give Harley away. Somebody else adopted him. The last I heard, he passed away from cat leukemia. I guess it's the thing. But here's the thing. Why am I telling that story? <laughs> the reason why I'm telling is because some of you, even in the body of Christ, you feel like this adopted pet. Like you're in church, but the church is just putting up with you. Or worse, you're around God, but God's just putting up with you. And I think as a church, we have to repent. Because as a church, church people, we forget sometimes we were all adopted. Every one of us came in with some habits that needed some grace and truth applied to them. And so there's going to be some people that are going to get adopted in that are going to come with some habits that we're going to have to be patient and gracious with and apply truth to them. But some of you, you feel that way because you don't know who you are in Christ. You haven't met Abba. You haven't met your heavenly father. And as long as you stay in that place, you will be rendered ineffective to everything that God has for you, what he wants to use. Listen, God loves the orphan, but it was never God's intention for orphans to ever exist. He never wanted orphans to exist. He has invited all of us to be adopted as his sons and daughters. So how do we walk as heirs? How do we walk as heirs? The story of the prodigal son, I think, describes it really well. Basically, there's a man, two sons. The younger son says, I want my inheritance. I want to just go and live my life, do my thing. So the, the dad didn't try to force him, didn't try to stop him. He gave him his inheritance. This young man went off in the world and squandered it all, lost it all. Before you know it, he's broken. He's having to eat out of pig troughs. Whatever food is left over, he realizes this is not a good life for me. This is not what I want to be. This is not who I am. And so he says, I'm going to go back to my dad and just ask him if I could be a, a servant in his house again. Because even the servants are eating better than I'm eating right now. So we pick up the story in Luke chapter 15. It says, so he returned home to his father. And while he was a long way off, everybody say a long way. A long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. And I am no longer worthy of being called your son. To walk as an heir, first thing you have to do is you have to confess and return. Confess and return. 
We are all prodigals. Every one of us is a prodigal. And the only way that you can really walk as an heir has to start with confessing and returning. Another word is repentance. That word repentance is not very popular in church anymore. But when you understand the trueness of that word, it is the most free liberating word that you could ever experience. Because it simply means this, to stop and turn away from. To stop and turn away from the things you've been doing, the way you've been living, and start walking towards Jesus. Well, of course, when you stop and turn away from the way you've been living and you start walking towards Jesus, things are going to get better. And so he had to stop and he had to return. But I find this, I find that a lot of people are completely comfortable and they love the idea of confessing their sins to a savior. They love the idea of Jesus is my savior. Okay, I wanna let you know, Cody's my wife. She is also a great cook. I have never referred to Cody as, this is Cody, my amazing cook unless I want to get slapped. Her being a good cook is a byproduct of her first being my wife. Jesus is a savior, but only as a byproduct of him being your Lord. He has to be your Lord. The only way he has the ability, the power to come in and save you from your sins is you have to say, I submit to your lordship. I submit to who you are. And because of who you are, you save me. And the only way that you can be an heir, you have to confess and return. Confess and return. Luke 15 Verse 22 says this, But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring and put it on his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf that we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead, but now he has returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Number two, to be an heir, you must accept that you are accepted. Accept that you are accepted. We could read over that part that says, he said, put a ring on his finger, but a ring always represented authority. It always represented the name of the family. It always represented where you belong. And so what this dad did is he said, you do not deserve this. You cannot earn this. And you will be always be imperfect to fulfill this, but you belong to this family. And you have the full authority of my name, of my family, in spite of the fact that you can't earn it and you don't deserve it and you will always be imperfect to perform it. But he puts a ring on his finger and the same is true with you. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, he calls you his own. And he says, yeah, you're not perfect and you will never be perfect. But the only way you can be an heir It's by faith, just accept that you're his son, you're his daughter. And there's also things that he wants you to do for him. It says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Now, doesn't that kind of seem like it's contradicting itself. It says it's not by works so that no one can boast. But then it says, for God's handiwork, creating Christ to do good works. 
There's a difference between the work you think you're supposed to be doing and the work that God has for you. And his work is always kingdom work. It's always souls. Number three is this. Look for and celebrate the prodigals. Look for and celebrate the prodigals. Going on in verse 28. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I've slaved. Everybody say slaved. There's that slave mentality. This is a son who sees himself as a slave for you. And you never once refused, or you refused to get even a single, sorry, and never once refused to do a single thing that you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for, my, for a feast for my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, look, dear son, look, look at the compassion of the father, even towards the son with the slave mentality. Look at this compassion. Look, dear son, you've always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. Church people, listen. Listen, you've always been there. Everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead to come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. One of the most effective ways to walk out as an heir is to keep a mentality of an heir, and that is to focus on the things of the kingdom. That priority, not just your own priority, Our Heavenly Father's priority is simply this, the return of every one of his sons and daughters. That is our Heavenly Father's primary priority. First for you to be returned, but then for you, while they are a long ways off, to run and celebrate them and bring them back to the Father's house. To look for them to love them, to care. You want to be an heir. You have to see this. Let's close our eyes, bow our heads. God sees you as an heir, co-heirs with Christ, which means he sees you as he sees his own son. And I know that that is almost impossible to wrap your brain around, but this is the truth. The truth is this. Jesus gave his life for you willingly. He did the will of his father. He did the will of his father. So you have to understand God esteemed your life higher than he esteemed his own son. God doesn't make bad deals. So when he trades his son for you, he says the value of my son, my daughter, in spite of how broken and messed up and full of sin and habits and habitual sin and addictions and brokenness and all that. I value them even higher than my own son. I value them. When God sees you, he sees Jesus. He doesn't see anything else. He sees Jesus. In order for you to walk as an heir, Confess, return. It starts there. It starts there. If you're here today and you just feel like you're away from God, 
for whatever reason, you may have been around church for a long time. You might have done church things. But this morning, you know that the Holy Spirit is revealing to you that you've never actually had a relationship with your heavenly Father. And here in a second, when you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, immediately God is the right and just judge says, Haha, you are not guilty. But as soon as that happens, you step into sonship. You step in as a son or as a daughter. And he has given you the spirit that says, that cries out, Abba, Father, your daddy, he loves you. If you're here today and you've never done that, every eye head bowed, every eye closed, I wanna pray with you. Let's put our hands up across this room right now. I just wanna pray with you if that's you. You need a relationship with Jesus. Anybody in this place? As soon as I see your hand, you can put it down. I'm not gonna embarrass you or anything like that. I just wanna know who needs a relationship with Jesus. Okay, got it, thank you. Thank you so much for being bold. Appreciate it. Anybody else? I need a relationship with Jesus. Okay. Father God, I thank you so much for that person. I don't know everything that's going on in their lives, but you know every detail. And I thank you that right now as they come before you, as they confess their sins, as they repent and walk out that repentance, God, I thank you that they are new in you. And just talk to him right there in your chair. Just say, God, here's my life. I know that I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. But I believe that you sent your son, Jesus, to die on the cross for me. He paid the price. I thank you that he rose from the grave. I thank you that he went to heaven. He's preparing a place for me now. God, come and give me a new life in you. Give me a new start, a new beginning. Help me to always be your daughter be your son in your kingdom to walk as an heir because of Christ Jesus. God, that's a prayer for our church, for every person in here. God, let us be your heirs, the heirs to the kingdom of God, sons and daughters, confident, not perfect, not perfect. We're gonna make mistakes, but called, purposed, anointed to do your work to do your will. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. We had one person raise their hand to give their life to Jesus. Come on, let's make some noise for that one person today. Proud of you.